Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to The Lead. We're live from Capitol Hill. I'm Jake Tapper. Behind me, the U.S. Capitol, the scene of a dark day in American history, the deadly insurrection exactly one year ago today. Five people lost their lives on January 6, 2021, during or immediately after the riot. And the very democracy of the United States was attacked and shaken. Today, President Joe Biden addressed the nation from Statuary Hall inside the U.S. Capitol and placed the blame for the horrible attack squarely on the shoulders of former President Trump. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. And because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. On that dark day, a mob of angry Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol. It was two months after Trump had lost the election. Trump spent weeks, months refusing to accept the results, challenging them in every way he could in court, on air, on social media, through intimidation of public officials and private and publicly. Trump told his supporters, come to D.C., on the day the electoral votes would be officially counted in Congress, January 6th, Trump said it would be, quote, wild. And that morning, Trump fed his supporters even more lies and called on the crowd to stop democracy in action. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And after this, We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Now, remember, even top Trump allies admitted in those hours after the attack that there was ultimately one person responsible for the insurrection. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. But shortly thereafter, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and many other Republicans changed their tune. They followed Trump's lead as he continued and continues to this day to push the big lie that the election was stolen. It's a dangerous and false and deadly claim with very real life or death consequences. Among those lost that day, U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. His mother talked to us last May about her son's legacy. I can't believe that I have a child that's going to be in the history books for all the wrong reasons. Because he was, he was such a good person and he was so good at his job. And he, you know, he, he was texting all his buddies to see if they were okay on that day while, while he was fighting for four hours, four plus hours. 
without any help. That is the very real loss on a personal level suffered on January 6, 2021. But there have also been ramifications beyond any one person, beyond any one family. Over the next two hours, we're going to examine the state of our democracy in the United States, how the nation has been transformed by that day and since, with two sitting House members from each major party who have decided it's time to leave office. Plus, a Capitol Hill staffer, one who at the time worked for Kevin McCarthy. He'll join us to talk about his experience and why he's now working for McCarthy's Republican nemesis, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. And of course, we're going to take a look at how this nation heals, if it can, if we can, from this unprecedented and dark time in America. We're going to start today with CNN's Alex Marquardt and a closer look at what we've learned about that awful day in terms of the specifics of the MAGA terrorist attack on the Capitol. And we want to warn you, especially parents, there are scenes of graphic violence and explicit language. For weeks, President Donald Trump hyped the rally on January 6th. Be there, he tweeted, will be wild. That day, his family and allies whipped up the crowd. Have some backbone, show some fight. Let's have trial by combat. Then Trump proceeded to call out his own vice president. And Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. He lied about the election and urged his followers to march on the Capitol. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. A year on from the January insurrection, we've learned much more about how the day unfolded, who the players were, how they organized, communicated, and attacked the Capitol. More video has come out revealing how dangerous it truly was. As Trump spoke on the ellipse, the first clashes between protesters and police, while Vice President Mike Pence made clear he would follow the law, and Congress started to certify the Electoral College vote. It wasn't long before the scene quickly unraveled. We have been told by Capitol Police that the Capitol is in lockdown. Pence was rushed off the Senate floor. Certification was halted. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. I can see at least half a dozen protesters scaling, literally climbing the walls of the Capitol to get up to where their fellow protesters are. Rioters smashed windows, broke down doors, and rushed into the hallways. Officer Eugene Goodman led the mob away from the Senate chamber, where Pence was located, as they shouted his name. Lawmakers like Senator Mitt Romney ran from the advancing crowd. Where the fuck are they? Others inside the House chamber took cover. The doors barricaded. Police officers' guns drawn. The day's first fatality came when insurrectionists tried to break through the Speaker's lobby. Rider Ashley Babbitt was shot by an officer and died from her wounds. Outside, our CNN team was moving to the north side of the Capitol when we were attacked. We tried to get out as quickly as possible. Who are you with? There's more of us than you. There's more of us than you. We were physically unharmed. Others not as lucky. When rioters poured into a tunnel blocked by police, they sprayed officers with pepper spray before dragging out 
D.C. police officer Michael Fanone, tasing him and beating him with a flagpole. They were screaming out, kill him with his own gun. I just remember yelling out that I have kids. Officer Daniel Hodges was pinned down in the crush of bodies, wedged in a doorway, his mouth bleeding. There's a guy ripping my mask off, and he was able to rip away my baton and beat me with it, and um, you know, he was practically foaming at the mouth. We now know that as the rampage spiraled out of control, Trump sat for hours watching it all on TV before issuing a tepid message to his followers. So go home. We love you. You're very special. But go home and go home in peace. A curfew will go into effect in around an hour's time. Uh, there is no indication right now that these protesters have any in, uh, inclination of going anywhere. There's no indication uh, that they had heard the message from the president to go home. They weren't done yet. Descending on a press area, destroying equipment, and talking about killing journalists. Start making a list, put all those names down, and we start hunting them down one by one. With night falling and a curfew approaching, reinforcements finally arrived to flush out the rioters. Wolf, we are back on the western side of the Capitol. What you can hear there is a flashbang, presumably from this police force that has just moved in. Wolf, what you're looking at now is a metropolitan uh, police from Washington, D.C., who just before this 6 p.m. curfew have moved in here to push out the rioters. They have been shouting, move back at this crowd of hundreds, if not more, Trump supporters on the western side of the Capitol building. Many felt victorious, their message heard. Several dozen were arrested, but hundreds more slipped into the night away from the police. A relatively quiet end to one of the most dramatic and dark days in American history. Jake, it was right here on the western side of the Capitol that this insurrection really started and ended a year ago. And in the days that followed, a huge security perimeter was set up all around the Capitol complex with 10-foot-high fencing and thousands of National Guard troops from all across the country. That is all gone now. As you can see, there is not a very large security presence out here on this anniversary. It has been quite a calm day. We've seen tour groups coming by, people coming uh, to take pictures, uh, nothing in the way of protest, and that calm really driving home. What an extraordinary and violent day that was last year, Jake. Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. And you saw in Alex's piece the frenzied crowd chanting, Hang Mike Pence, after Trump pushed the lie that then Vice President Pence could have overturned the will of the American people. Today, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection, revealed that some members of Pence's team are talking to the committee. We uh, look forward to continuing uh, the cooperation that we've had uh, with members of former vice president's team uh, and uh, look forward as well to, to his cooperation. CNN's Jamie Gengel joins us live. Jamie, how likely is it that the former vice president himself will cooperate? You know, Jake, I know conventional wisdom is that it would seem unlikely that Pence would want to cooperate, but I would not rule it out. I'm not suggesting some big dramatic public hearing, but there are other ways Pence might be willing to help the committee. Keep in mind, not only did Cheney confirm that Team Pence's top aides are cooperating with the committee, 
but it appears they really have a good relationship. And we know that his closest advisors would not be cooperating without Pence's blessing. Uh, my understanding is that while no formal discussions have happened yet, that the committee believes the former vice president played what one source called, quote, a crucial role in upholding democracy, that they have, again, quote, respect for the role he played that day, and that he has an important story to be told. I think the door is open, Jake. And we know that former White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham spoke to the committee right. last night. One of the members of the committee told CNN they learned a lot from her they didn't know before. Correct. My understanding is Stephanie Grisham told the committee and has told CNN that Trump was, quote, gleefully watching TV. And this part is new, that he was rewinding and watching again during the riot. This is, you know, a new piece of information. It's a description we've never heard before. Just for context, Grisham was working remotely that day. She was not at the White House. But our understanding is this is the account she heard from people that she's very close to who were at the White House that day with the president. So just imagine, Jake, while his staff, while Republican members of Congress, while his own family uh, were begging Trump to say something to stop the riot, he, according to Grisham, was gleefully watching and rewinding. It's exactly the kind of testimony, Jake, that goes to the point the committee has been making that Trump's inaction that day, that 187 minutes, speak to what the committee believes is dereliction of duty. And Jamie, former Vice President Dick Cheney joined his daughter, right. Congresswoman Cheney, on the House floor today. He had a blunt message for Republican leadership. He, he really did. I'm told he came to show support for his daughter and also to show support for law enforcement. But I, I want to read you one line from his statement. He said, quote, I am deeply disappointed at the failure of many members of my party to recognize the grave nature of the January 6 attacks and the ongoing threat to our nation, end quote. Look, Dick Cheney is a controversial figure, but there is no question where he stands on Donald Trump, on his actions on January 6th. And when he says disappointed, that's an understatement about how he feels about the Republican Party caving to Trump. Jake. All right, Jamie Gangel, thank you so sure. much. Here to discuss Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois and Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida. They're both on the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection and both are retiring after this term. Uh, Congressman Kinzinger, uh, let's start with you. What can you tell us about the cooperation so far with members of Vice President Pence's team? Well, it's been robust. I mean, we've we've obviously witnessed over or uh, interviewed over 300 witnesses. Um, the vice president's team uh, has has been cooperative. I think it's it's not just in their interest; it's in the country's interest. I think uh, the vast majority of them are honorable, and they also recognize, as was mentioned in the report, that the vice president played an important role. But and that's the key: is you know we may not have to talk to the president, the former president. But we're getting pieces of this puzzle. All these pieces right now are in this box. And when we put this puzzle together, we're going to be able to see what I think even more importantly is what was the president doing? What did he know prior to January 6th? And what led to this? Uh, and, and Congresswoman Murphy, the vice president was not at the White House uh, that day. He was on Capitol Hill uh, with you and your colleagues. If you could ask him a question, what are some of the things you'd want to know? 
Well, I'd like to know from him what uh, he had said to the president when the president was pressuring him uh, both publicly and, and did he pressure him privately to act in a way different than what he did. I actually am very impressed that he carried out his duties as vice president um, and certified the election despite the enormous pressure and despite having his life be put on the line. He came back and did the right and patriotic thing for this country. And I want to understand the motivations behind that and what led up to that moment. Yeah, interesting. And Congressman uh, Kinzinger, um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi led a moment of silence uh, this morning. Uh, there were lives lost, including that of police officers that day and in the subsequent days. The only Republicans on the House floor were Congresswoman Liz Cheney and her father, former Vice President Dick Cheney. I- I'm sure you would have been there as well. We should tell our viewers you're back home in the Chicago area because your wife is about to have a baby. Um, but were you surprised that, that Liz Cheney was the only House Republican there? Five people died that traumatic day. Four police officers died by suicide in the days after. Was I surprised? No. Was I disappointed? Yeah. And, and it's, it, it kind of breaks your heart because, you know, look, regardless of the politics of the moment, it, really democracy is at threat. And I don't even think a year ago I would have been so definitive in that. But what we've seen over the last year, a lack of accountability, continued misinformation, a sizable majority of Americans believing utter lies, uh, democracy is at threat. And so if you're a member of Congress, and some probably had prior commitments, I understand that, but if you think you're going to avoid it because you don't want to answer the questions, this is, Jake, where I would encourage every member of the media, local media, national media, anytime you talk to a Republican member of Congress, ask them, was the election legitimate? And who do you think was responsible for January 6th? And don't let them weasel out. We need to be on the record for this. This is that dire to the future of self-governance. And we should note, uh, Congressman Murphy, people like you and Congressman Kinzinger, you come here to do good for the American people, left, right, center, wherever you are. But listen to um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island, talking about how much tougher it is to do the people's work since the insurrection a year ago. Oh, it's a full screen. I'm sorry. I find the tolerance of some of my colleagues for rewriting what we lived through to be really hard to take. It's not just the flagrant Trumpsters who lie without shame about what took place. It's also the more decent and regular Republicans that hunker down and won't call them out on it and leave the lies unchallenged. It makes it a harsher, colder place, unquote. That's uh, that's a paper statement from Sheldon Whitehouse. What do you think? Do you agree? I think that when we come here, we should argue passionately for our ideological policy differences. But at the end of the day, we should be principled behind our commitment to the Constitution. And certainly to see some of our colleagues try to whitewash what happened on January 6th, to put forward different narratives, different facts, disinformation, has been disheartening because how can you take them seriously as a legislator anymore when they are, um, you know, sowing so much disinformation and undercutting the Constitution? It it is distressing. And let's talk about what's next, because, Congressman Kinzinger, uh, you're not running for uh, re-election, and you've ruled out a run, at least for now, for statewide office in Illinois. You say you're going to dedicate yourself to working against the extremism. Is that not a battle that would be better fought from inside Congress, inside the Republican Party? You know, I think in a different circumstance, maybe um, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going anywhere and I'm going to do my best to continue to get that message out, have a broader fight. You know, when you're fighting in a primary for re-election and also fighting against disinformation in your own party, uh, obviously that's difficult. 
And the other thing, Jake, first off, the Democrats drew me in with another Republican member of Congress in Illinois, let's be clear, like they did 10 years ago. Uh, but secondarily, I've served 12 years in Congress at the end of this term. And uh, I think every member of Congress ought to look inside after 12 years, particularly, and say, uh, should I stay or is there somebody better that can come? All right, Congressman Kinzinger, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And Congresswoman uh, Murphy, uh, before you go, what's your message to, to constituents who see all this dysfunction, see honorable people like you and Congressman Kinzinger leaving and think, well, maybe there's just no hope for democracy? There's always hope for d democracy. You know, we've had dark periods in our country before, but it's always been, we've been led out of it by the people. And this isn't about any one political actor. This is about we the people. And so they need to lift up their voices and elect people who better represent uh, our American values and a commitment to democracy, and that they should be providing that feedback as well. And I think together as Americans, we can bring this country and heal and move forward as the great country that we are. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears, Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, look uh, at what happened to the MAGA terrorists who attacked the Capitol and why some of the charges have been controversial. Plus, we're going to talk to one of the last people to leave the House floor, a former staffer for House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who now works for Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Stay with us. Some say it's the most colossal prosecution effort in the history of the United States of America with several terabytes of evidence to sift through, including videos that insurrectionists made and posted and bragged about. Investigators have charged at least 725 people who stormed the Capitol that day. But as CNN's Paula Reed reports, only 30 of them, 30, have been sentenced to prison. In the year since the violence of January 6th, Federal prosecutors have been building cases against Trump supporters who participated in the attack on the Capitol as part of the largest investigation in American history. Those involved must be held accountable. And there is no higher priority for us at the Department of Justice. Charging more than 725 defendants from nearly all 50 states and Washington, D.C., almost a quarter have already pleaded guilty of those, more than 70 have been sentenced. If they don't uphold the Constitution, then we will remove them from office. One of the most infamous faces of the insurrection, the so-called QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, who stormed the Senate floor, received nearly three and a half years in prison. Oh, I'm going to take a seat because my pants is a He pleaded guilty to obstructing an official proceeding. Specifically, Congress's certification of the Electoral College results. Everybody stay down. That's a felony offense, and at least 275 other rioters are facing the same charge. It carries a maximum prison term of 20 years. These obstruction cases have faced numerous court challenges, but judges have allowed them to move forward. Judge Timothy Kelly, who rejected First Amendment claims from a group of Proud Boys, pointing out that this was not protected speech like burning a flag or a sit-in, writing, there were many avenues for defendants to express their opinions without resorting to the conduct with which they have been charged. The DOJ is aggressively pursuing the far right-wing extremist groups allegedly involved in the attack, dozens of Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. Oath like those seen entering the Capitol here, have been charged in major conspiracy cases. 
Some judges have even questioned why certain rioters haven't been charged with crimes of terrorism. But the vast majority so far have pleaded guilty to a lesser misdemeanor offense. As a result of these plea deals, fewer than half of those sentenced, about 30 defendants, have received jail time, a development that's been controversial. They were trespassing at the U.S. Capitol because they were trying to disrupt an election. So I think it's wrong. I think DOJ has failed in the cases where they've had people end up with no jail time. So far, the longest punishment has been given to Robert Palmer, who admitted to spraying the contents of a fire extinguisher at a police line and then throwing the empty canister at officers. He was given more than five years behind bars. I wouldn't be mad if he uh, if it was more than that. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, who defended the Speaker's lobby during the attack. I want the absolute max. Longer sentences are a possibility as more of the most serious cases come to a head. And in the coming months, the first January 6th trials are expected to begin. If convicted at trial, defendants could face tougher sentences than they would under a plea deal with the Justice Department. I think the big question here, though, is how high will this go? How high is DOJ going to be able to climb the ladder and get beyond just the people who physically stormed the Capitol and get to the really people who were behind this? Paula Reed, CNN, Washington. And our thanks to Paula Reed for that report. A year later, Donald Trump's grip on the GOP seems stronger than ever. A member of Trump's White House and a former Republican House member will join us next to discuss the future of the once great party. One year after the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol, former President Trump's grip on the Republican Party seems stronger than ever. He is still the party's top fundraiser. He's the front runner for the 2024 presidential nomination, according to polls, and the most coveted Republican endorser in this year's midterm elections. Let's discuss with former White House Director of Strategic Communications under President Trump, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and former Congresswoman Mia Love of Utah. Uh, Alyssa, this morning, uh, former Trump White House Press Secretary and Communications Director Stephanie Grisham told CNN uh, that there is an effort among former Trump officials to stop Trump. Take a listen. Next week, a group of former Trump staff um, are going to come together. Administration officials are going to come together and we're going to talk about how we can formally do some things to try and stop him and also you know, the extremism, that that kind of violence and rhetoric that has been talked about and continues to divide our country. Grisham declined to say who would be joining her in the efforts, but she said she thought there'd be about 15 uh, former Trump staffers, including some who worked inside the, the White House. Realistically, what could they do, do you think? Well, I think the key thing would be for these officials, and I'm actually going to join the conversation. I've not committed to anything, but I'd be curious to see. I'll have a conversation with anyone who's interested in upholding our democracy. But I think it's about playing in primaries and showing that the Trump endorsement is not the most powerful thing uh, uh, anymore in politics. So going in to protect those impeachment voters, people like Fred Upton, to say, these are good conservatives, these are good longstanding Republicans, But it's about winning with voters. Um, It's not a messaging war. It's not doing what we've seen from the Lincoln Project. So I'm skeptical if it it could work. But I think it's a very worthy effort that I'm willing to potentially support. And Congresswoman Love, about a month after the insurrection, an AP poll found that only 11 percent of Republicans thought Trump bore a great deal or quite a bit of responsibility for the breach at the Capitol. Today, that number uh, is uh, 22 percent, still very, very low. How much of Trump's rehabilitation has to do with the fact that 
many Republicans never saw a, a problem with his role in the first place. Well, I think that it's it's kind of like mob rules, right? It's 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 they're trying to find evidence to substantiate their support to begin with. So it's very hard for them for some reason to change course. But I have to be very clear about what happened on January 6th. This wasn't just um, it was a catastrophic catastrophic event. It was a betrayal more than anything. It was an attack of a branch of government from one government of from one branch of our own government to another. So this is not like a foreign entity came in and attacked us. This was our very own. And, and there was some betrayal um, that people really should feel. As a former member of Congress, I put myself in um, those halls, in those chambers. And I'm thinking to myself, how could anybody be in those chambers, especially um, the former vice president, Mike Pence, and not see this as a major betrayal? So I think yeah. we have a lot of healing to do. And I think that number is going to go up. Um, I think that as people start to realize that this president isn't this former president isn't going to hurt them, they can start speaking and being courageous again. Alyssa, you tweeted today, quote, on January 6th, Trump abdicated his leadership as president of the United States through his incitement. Then in action, when a violent mob descended on the Capitol, he proved himself forever unworthy of the office he once held, unquote. But I have to say, as courageous as I think it is that that you say that, uh, it does seem like you're in the minority uh, in your in your party, in the Republican Party. Why do you think that is? Well, Jake, it's devastating. If you had told me last year that this is the conversation we'd be having today and that Donald Trump, after that horrific things that we saw this time last year took place, that he'd still be the front runner for the Republican nomination in 2024. That just shows how, what a death grip he has on the party and the lack of courage that I've seen from elected leaders with the few exceptions like Liz Cheney, like Adam Kinzinger is really devastating. And then you're seeing more good Republicans retiring. We're losing the Rob Portmans. We're losing the Pat Toomey's. So I think we're in an era where the Republican Party is starting to look very different. And if our better angels don't win out, it's a party that I just don't think is one of the future. And, and, and Congresswoman Love, it's not just... Uh, Republicans embracing Trump. It's them embracing his lie, his lie about the election. And according to The Washington Post, at least 163 Republicans who have embraced Trump's false claims are now running for statewide positions. That includes 69 candidates for governor in 30 states, 55 U.S. Senate candidates, five House candidates, 13 state attorneys general candidates, 18 secretary of state candidates. I mean, next time they might not need to to storm the Capitol to overturn the election. They might just have people in the right places and they'll just do it through their office. Well, if you look at the race in um, with Purdue, he's coming back and he's actually going against um, someone who's been in Congress who hasn't uh, completely um, taken in all of the Kool-Aid, but he's actually going in as a Trump supporter. And I think that that's absolutely going to be detrimental for the Republican Party. I will say this. That at the end of the day, there is hope in all of this. I agree with my former colleague, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, where she said, you know, everybody gaveled in and the American people did their job. Constitution process proceeded and um, we were able to get it done and certify the vote. So I have hope. I have hope that the Republican Party will 
evolve in the right way, we'll go back to looking at what their principles are and remembering what they stood for and reject this nonsense. Because even on policy, there are so many things that actually went outside of the Republican, pol Republican um, principles that there's no reason to hang on to this former president. We need to move on and heal this country. Alyssa, Governor Ron DeSantis, Republican of Florida today, uh, said that the media regarded January 6th as, as Christmas. This was a Christmas for us. He downplayed the tragedy. He said it's just an opportunity for Trump haters to push an agenda. Here's a little bit of what he said. It's an insult to people when you say it's an insurrection and then a year later, nobody has been charged with that. I think it's going to end up being just a politicized Charlie Foxtrot today. Um, I don't expect anything good to come out of anything that Pelosi and the gang are doing. Charlie Foxtrot is a military lingo for cluster F. Um, I mean, a lot of uh, there are a lot of conservative Republicans who had hoped for uh, Governor DeSantis to be maybe a bridge from the Trump era to to uh, normalcy again. Um, what's your response when you hear that? Oh, it's very disappointing to hear because exactly he's somebody who could run as a credible Republican and I think actually potentially defeat Donald Trump. But he's echoing what has essentially been the Republican talking points throughout this, which is it was simply a riot. It was nothing worse than the social justice protests that we had seen the previous summer. What made this an insurrection was the intent, which was to overthrow the election results. It was to disenfranchise 80 million plus people who voted for Joe Biden. That is by definition an insurrection that is not comparable to any sort of riot or protest that we saw previously. And my Republican friends know that. The fact that they're echoing it is just I mean, it's it, it's they're doing their best to cover for what is a horrible day. We should own it. This will not get better with time. We need to move on from it and just accept it was a terrible day. We are better than this and leave Donald Trump in the past. I think it was conservative writer Kevin Williamson who said there's a big difference between a coup d'etat and a coup de target. Uh, Alyssa, Congresswoman Love, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, one of the last people who was removed from the House floor that day, a former staffer for Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, will join us live to talk about that day. Stay with us. These facts require immediate action of President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility, quell the brewing unrest, and ensure President-elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. I was the first person to contact him when the riots were going on. He didn't see it. What he ended the call was saying, telling me, he'll put something out to make sure to stop this. And that's what he did. He put a video out later. Quite a lot later. And it was a pretty weak video. That was House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy first publicly blaming then-President Trump for the insurrection, for the attack on the Capitol, and then whitewashing, defending Trump's response and rewriting history months later. Let's discuss this with Ryan O'Toole. He was on the House floor during the insurrection. At the time, he worked for Minority Leader McCarthy. Now he works for Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Uh, Ryan, uh, thanks so much for joining us. W what was your role that day officially, and, and when did you first detect that things were going wrong? Jake, thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's crazy to think it's been a year since, uh, since the day. Um, at the time, I was going into my sixth year on the Hill uh, as the Republican cloakroom director for Leader McCarthy. Um, and it's sort of uh, a job that you run the procedural operations for House Republicans. So the, the electoral process, the certification process was something uh, I was familiar with, my team and I were familiar with. And, and we had sort of anticipated a, a typical day in that sense. Uh, but obviously what ensued was, was far from typical. Uh, and I think 
you look back at that day and you think of kind of the sequence of events, right? Uh, and so the first thing that really tipped me off was uh, the removal of, of congressional leadership from the chamber. Um, and, and you're well aware, Jake, that that's done with incredible speed. And that's a good indication that something something with the security posture is not right. And, and uh, eventually you were evacuated and you got into a secure location. When you were there, uh, among other members of Congress, how were they reacting? You know, the, again, the sequence of events uh, had a range of emotions to it. When we were still on the floor, uh, members were fearful for their lives. Uh, Republican members themselves, uh, men crying in the cloakroom for their safety. And so uh, as we escaped the chamber um, to what sounded like gunshots uh, to the secure location, um, I think people were, were still were still scared. Uh, members and staff were still scared and not sure what was happening. And so you did have some members express a different view. Uh, one member, Mo Brooks, for example, uh, was was glad. He was cheering on uh, the fact that the 117th Congress had started this way. Uh, and that was that was much to the dismay of others in the room. And uh, and certainly, I think, does not carry the sentiment that the day has today. You were working for McCarthy at the time. I know from talking to a lot of members of Congress how worried they were not only for their their own lives, but also for the lives of their their staffers. Um, what did McCarthy have to say to his staff that day and in the days after the attack? Uh, you know, my recollection um, was that he did not uh, he didn't engage with any of his staff. Uh, I didn't I didn't get a chance to to have uh, any sort of debrief. And my understanding is that none none of the McCarthy staff were able to to connect with him regarding uh, the day's events um, or how to respond to them, frankly. Uh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't recount uh, as we're walking back from that that secure room that we'd been evacuated to to complete the day's business uh, on the House floor. Speaker Pelosi and Leader Hoyer stopped our team, our floor team, to thank us for the job that we had done, assisting members uh, and, and continuing the process and continuing the, the Democrat process that we were there for. Um, and I think that demonstrates the, the color of the leadership that that day demanded. I'm stunned that Leader McCarthy didn't reach out to his staff. Um, how do you explain McCarthy's evolving opinion on Trump's role in the, in the insurrection, blaming him directly for the mob, and then months later leading the whitewashing of it? Look, I think, um, you know, there's a good, there's a great leadership quote uh, that former Boston Mayor Corley, I think, has used before. Um, there go the people. I am their leader. I must follow them. And I think that really describes uh, Leader McCarthy's leadership strategy and that there's not one. Um, his leadership strategy is dictated by the most extreme wings of his party. Uh, and so when Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates put their thumb on the scale, that's what he responds to. And that drives the House Republican conference into the arms of somebody like Donald Trump. And so the leadership that enables that behavior uh, is, is continuing uh, today, as we've seen. What if McCarthy had just maintained his original position that Trump needed to accept his share of responsibility? Yeah, I can't speak to, to why uh, McCarthy's changed his position since since January 6th. Um, as, as you alluded to, in the, in the weeks after, he came onto the floor and said the president bears responsibility for this. Uh, something's changed in his values. I can't speak to what, what that might be uh, in, in terms of what his calculus is. Look, for me, after January 6th, my conscience and my values were clear. We need to be loyal to the Constitution. And I made a choice to, to leave and go work for somebody who did believe in that. After January 6th, Kevin McCarthy went to Mar-a-Lago. And I, I think that says uh, things pretty clearly for the American people. And what was your response uh, as somebody who worked in the cloakroom at that moment 
after there was blood on the floor in the Capitol, 146 Republican House members voted to disenfranchise the entire state of Arizona, the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, based on these deranged lies about the election. That, that must have been, as somebody who has allegiance to the Constitution, who now works for Congresswoman Liz Cheney, that must have been incredibly dispiriting. Well, it's disappointing uh, is what it is. And these are supposed to be uh, the best versions uh, of our districts, right? And we send them to represent us and represent our voices. And the act of disenfranchising so many Americans based off of what they know is a lie is, is frankly despicable. And uh, it's a disgrace. Ryan O'Toole, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your actions on the Thanks, House Jake. floor that day. Very difficult day to be carrying out the constitutional duties. Appreciate Appreciate your work. Coming up, the fight to protect democracy before the next election. We're going to talk to two leaders from key states targeted by pushers of the big lie. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're live from Capitol Hill. It has been one year since that deadly insurrection here. This hour, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and members of Congress are going to hold a prayer vigil on the steps of the Capitol. We're going to bring that to you live. Also, we're going to take a closer look at House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy and his ambitions to become the next House Speaker, seemingly, at least according to his critics, at any cost, even the cost of democracy. But leading this hour, We must make sure such an attack never happens again. That was President Biden's message today as American democracy seems to be teetering on the edge of destruction thanks to former President Trump's election lies and help from MAGA media and capitulation from the vast majority of elected House Republicans and Senate Republicans who say nothing to denounce the big lie. We're going to have more on that in a minute. But first, let's go to CNN's Caitlin Collins, who is live at the White House for us. And and Caitlin, President Biden... He notably didn't even mention the name Donald Trump today. Why? Yeah, President Biden said that was by design because, Jake, he didn't want this speech to you to walk away from it and think it was Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. But instead, it was the current president rebuking his former president, his immediate predecessor, and from the steps of Capitol Hill inside those hallways, branding him as a liar. The big lie being told by the former president and many Republicans. Because the former president lost, he's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. And Jake, of course, the president there not only talking about that, but also going through what he has said, what Donald Trump has said in the months since he did leave office, really dismantling the ways that he has talked about the election, trying to say that he won and that Joe Biden did not, going through it step by step, saying, even if you're a Republican, how can you say that you won your election if the former president says that this is what happened with this election? And Jake, he did say 16 times referring to him as the former president in some lines that seemed almost designed to trigger Trump, going directly after him, adding emphasis in lines when he said that he was the defeated former president. But in the end, as President Biden was leaving Capitol Hill today, he was asked by a reporter why he didn't name Trump directly. And Jake, he said it's because it wasn't about Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. But what he said it more was, and I'm quoting him now, about the system and somebody who decides to put himself above everything. Hmm. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Across the country, supporters of Donald Trump, who pushed the big lie, are still pressuring local election officials to revisit the past election and to recount the 2020 vote. As CNN's Sarah Murray reports, there are a lot of people running for office and observers are concerned that they want to make it easier to overturn election victories that they don't like in the future. I'm Ron Hanks, and I approve this message. 
U.S. Senate hopeful Ron Hanks is shooting at fake Dominion voting machines and calling for an audit in Colorado, a state Joe Biden won in 2020 by more than 13 points. In liberal Washington state, a local Republican party is knocking on doors, trying to uncover voter fraud. We're canvassing now in about a dozen counties. In Crow Wing, Minnesota, a bright red county in a state that's gone blue since 1976, residents are pressing the Board of Commissioners for an audit based on false and misleading pretenses. That log will tell us if that thing went onto the Internet and switched any votes. And in Alabama, which former President Trump carried by 25 points, Republican Secretary of State John Merrill is still batting back unfounded claims of fraud. I think a lot of that is people listening to people who have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. It's almost as if they will claim that a murder was committed and yet they cannot prove that the person ever lived, let alone a body or a weapon. In the years since rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol, convinced the 2020 election was stolen, many Republicans are still lapping up Trump's election lies. They're pressuring local officials to revisit 2020. Some are even running for higher office. Others are passing legislation making it easier to meddle in election administration. 32 of those bills have become law in 17 states, which uh, is a really unprecedented amount of legislative interest in of the mechanics of election administration. Efforts to undermine confidence in election results began in hotly contested battleground states. But have since ballooned into a nationwide crusade. In Colorado, election officials like Justin Grantham are aware of Hank's ad. With his copy machine that he blew up with a rifle. Yes, I have seen that. But State Representative Hanks rebuffed offers to learn about the voting systems firsthand. I've extended multiple offers for him to come into my office and talk to me about the election, and he's not responded and not come in. Hanks told CNN he appreciates the offers, but he did his own research. I didn't really need it. Uh, I was at other locations, and so that made it um, rather redundant. Asked why he's still spreading debunked conspiracies, Hanks says nothing has been debunked. I think that is a, a false argument. Uh, we have found evidence and we, it is compounding daily. Back in Alabama, when Merrill met with election deniers, including MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell, the whole technology was attacked. he easily debunked their claims. And the information that they had been sharing with us could have been cleared up by doing a simple Google search of addresses. Other officials, though, are aiming to appease their constituents. When CNN asked a Crow Wing commissioner, who previously said he's confident in the county's election for an interview. I got an uh, email last night. I'm going to read it. He declined, I instead reading our interview request to audit supporters in a county meeting. Sarah Murray, CNN News. This week, he and other board members voted to ask Minnesota's Secretary of State to launch an audit. Motion passes. Now, democracy advocates worry that this swirl of disinformation could lead to more violence around future elections. Even Dominion Voting warned that violent ads like the one Ron Hanks is running in Colorado can endanger its employees as well as its customers. Jake. Sarah Murray, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Georgia Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and Michigan's Democratic Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Uh, Secretary Benson, let me start with you. The Washington Post spoke with Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel, and here's what she told them about her challenger, who's a Trump-backed conservative who filed a lawsuit challenging the vote in Michigan. Quote, there is no question that if I am replaced by Matthew DiPerno, democracy falls in Michigan. Not maybe, not possibly, certainly. He has made it clear not only that he supports the big lie, he's one of the originators of the big lie, unquote. Now, 
obviously she faces a, an election challenge there, but do you think that's hyperbole? And if not, what does that mean for the people of Michigan if their democracy falls? No, it's not hyperbole. Democracy is on the ballot this fall, and it is an opportunity for voters to hold accountable those who have lied time and time again, spreading misinformation about the truth of the 2020 election. But it's also a potential opportunity for those bad actors who have clearly shown they don't believe in democracy to gain the levers of power over our democracy, that I, as the chief election official, that uh, the attorney general, as the chief law enforcement officer, maintain to protect and preserve the integrity of our elections. If, those, if that authority is handed over to individuals who clearly do not believe in democracy and have used their careers to try to dismantle it, then indeed democracy could fall and wither on the vine here in our state and around the country. Lieutenant Governor Duncan, we, we hear the phrase democracy in peril quite a bit. Um, it, it maybe for some people can start to lose meaning after a while. But, but you have predicted a, quote, political civil war in Georgia. What, what do you mean by that? Well, we continue to be the, the center point of the political universe here in Georgia. And it seems that we're going to be a continued proving ground for democracy, but also for a style of leadership going forward. This, this notion that populism makes sense uh, in a long-term fashion and leadership is just a false narrative. We need real leadership right now. And uh, so we, we've got a, a busy 12 months ahead trying to, trying to defend uh, what we're doing here in Georgia and really put on display for the rest of the country what conservative leadership is all about. Secretary Benson, NPR conducted an analysis of the races for secretaries of state across the country, found at least 15 Republican candidates who pushed the big lie about the 2020 election, uh, including one running against you. What's your message to the secretaries of state throughout the country who are on the front lines of this fight, uh, Democrat, Republican, who have held the line and protected democracy, including Secretary Raffensperger in Georgia, a conservative Republican? Well, it's important on days like today in particular to recognize that in 2020, democracy prevailed because good people on both sides of the aisle did the right thing and protected the integrity of the accurate results of the election. And it's incumbent upon all of us now who are on the ballot to tell the truth, uh, to continue to emphasize the importance of the state's chief election officer as one who puts country first over party and to build a national coordinated nonpartisan coalition in support of pro-democracy election officials, as there is on the other side a clear national coordinated strategy to replace us with those who do not believe in democracy. And, and part of that, uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, we should know just for people uh, who heard your last uh, answer and aren't Georgians or aren't political junkies. What's going on is uh, you're the lieutenant governor of Georgia. The governor, Brian Kemp, he's running for reelection. He faces a primary challenge uh, from uh, conservative Republican uh, David Perdue, who has he's recasting himself as a as a MAGA Trump Republican. And he says he wouldn't have certified the election the way that Governor Kemp did. Uh, and this is really the biggest difference between them, right, is that Governor Kemp abided by the state constitution and did his constitutional duty. And David Perdue is recasting himself as somebody who will just bend to Trump's will. Yeah, David Perdue's primary challenge against Brian Kemp is, is a synthetic primary challenge. The only uh, distance between the two of them is one appears to be willing to lie that the president uh, won the election here in Georgia, which he didn't. And one is not willing and uh, is going to speak the truth, and that's Brian Kemp. I mean, he is literally the most conservative governor in Georgia's history and deserves an opportunity to continue to lead us. Um, and, and, Jake, to that point, I think if any Republican going forward is going to be taken seriously, 
they're going to have to have either gotten it right out of the gates, which is a pretty few slim, slim number of Republicans, or they're going to have to be reckoned with the fact of saying in front of a camera, I got it wrong and it's time to move on. Uh, and uh, Secretary Benson, let me ask you the, the, about election reform efforts in Congress. Uh, there are Republicans open to overhauling uh, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, uh, which is kind of written sloppily, uh, and it's the law that Trump and his allies were trying to use to convince Pence that he could overturn the election. I know that's not what Democrats want. Democrats want sweeping election reforms, but shouldn't Democrats at least try to get this part fixed uh, and, and work with Republicans on that? I think there are really three things that we need from the federal government. One is sustained funding for our elections and our democracy. The cost of running elections is increasing, and that's something that we need from the federal government. Two are basic, a basic floor of protections against what we've seen in nearly every state in this country to make it more difficult for everyday citizens to vote and hold their elected officials accountable. And then finally, we do need federal protections against election subversion, and, and reforming the Electoral Count Act has got to be a critical piece of that. So. All of these things, three things are needed. None is dispositive. None is, uh, you know, full, full election in support from the federal government requires action on all three. Uh, and certainly if one comes before the other, that's great. But as long as that does not negate the need to have the other two. So I, I fully support the efforts to mm-hmm. um, reform the Electoral Count Act, but not, you know, we have to make sure it's not at the expense of the other things we also need. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. The lesson that House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy appears to have learned from the insurrection and what that could mean if he gets what he has always wanted, that speaker's gavel. Plus, Republican Governor Larry Hogan has never been afraid to call out Donald Trump. He's going to join us next on the future of his party. Stay with us. Hey, look now at the possible next speaker of the House of Representatives if Republicans win control of the chamber in this year's election. Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy from California, who went from initially acknowledging Trump's culpability in the January 6th attack to spending the past year absolving the former president of any responsibility and whitewashing what happened. What might Speaker McCarthy do? For House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, one overriding question seems to have been at the top of his mind for years. Can I be speaker? (laughs) McCarthy's quest for the speaker's gavel started shortly after being elected to Congress in 2006, joining leadership in three years, becoming the House's third most powerful Republican in five years before taking the leader role in 2014. I want to thank my constituents and my colleagues for the trust that they instilled in me. But one year after that, despite being the heir apparent, McCarthy was passed over to replace Speaker John Boehner when ultra-conservative Freedom Caucus members vowed to not support him. We are going to move forward. The lesson McCarthy seems to have learned, make sure the most extreme members of your caucus are happy. Even if that means embracing lies and extremism. McCarthy was all in on Trump's election lies, for example. President Trump won this election, so everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. McCarthy signed on to that mendacious lawsuit from Texas that tried to throw out votes from states Biden won. Kevin McCarthy told me directly that he wasn't going to sign it. Uh, I said, good, you know, this is not, it's not a brief that we ought to be associated with. And then a few hours later, he signed it. And then, even after blood had been shed in the Capitol, 
McCarthy voted to disenfranchise all of the voters from Pennsylvania and Arizona based on those same lies. Although he did have this moment of clarity in the hours after the insurrection. We will not falter, we will not bend, and we will not shrink from our duty. Initially pointing a finger at his close ally, outgoing President Trump. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. But a little more than one week after that, McCarthy sang a different tune. I don't believe he provoked if you listen to what he said at the rally. And days later, McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss Trump's ring. He then turned his attention to Trump's biggest acolytes in Congress, including Representatives Paul Gosar, Lauren Boebert, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, whom McCarthy defended just last week after Twitter kicked her off its platform for posting misinformation about the COVID vaccine. And after Green had made this comment about him. He doesn't have the full support to be speaker. McCarthy called her to smooth things over, leading her to say they had a good call and that, quote, I like what he has planned ahead. Part of those plans? Punishing private companies that comply with the subpoenas from the bipartisan January 6th committee, writing, quote, a Republican majority will not forget and will stand with Americans to hold them fully accountable. McCarthy adding he would reinstate Gosar and Green on committees after they were kicked off by Democrats. Gosar for sharing a violent video depicting the apparent killing of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Green for her continued push of dangerous and bigoted, patently false conspiracy theories. They'll have committees. They may have other committee assignments. They may have better committee assignments. McCarthy has even hinted he could retaliate against Democrats by kicking them off their committees if Republicans take over next year. This body has suffered greatly. And a new standard will continue to be applied in the future. Looming over the November midterms, how would McCarthy have presided as speaker last year if he had been in charge during Trump's attempt to undermine the election? Any uh, person who would be third in line to the presidency must demonstrate a commitment to the Constitution and a commitment to the rule of law. Uh, and uh, Minority Leader McCarthy has not done that. I'm looking forward to being speaker in the next Congress. One note, in the last hour, Ryan O'Toole, a congressional Republican staffer who was working for Kevin McCarthy on the day of the Capitol insurrection on the floor of the House, he told me at the time that McCarthy did not engage with any of his staff on that horrible day. Uh, McCarthy's office has reached out and disputed that account. They wrote in a statement, quote, McCarthy refused pleas from his security detail to leave his office until all of his staff and several other staff members from other offices that were sheltering in hours were guaranteed safe passage out of the building. They all escorted us through the tunnels to the Rayburn garage. Throughout the day, McCarthy was in frequent contact with members of our staff, unquote. Let's discuss the larger issues here with the Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. Governor Hogan, I want to ask you, what do you think Kevin McCarthy would have done had he been speaker last year? Do you share Congresswoman Liz Cheney's skepticism that he would have upheld the Constitution uh, and done his duty? Well, look, I can't speculate as to what Kevin McCarthy, you know, did do or would might have done. Um, I, I can tell you that, you know, you, the, one of the clips that you just showed, uh, what he said on January 6th, uh, I agree with. And, uh, you know, the, I, I haven't seen any evidence to the contrary over the past year that would make me change my position about what happened on January 6th. Uh, but I, I, I can't speak to uh, what, what Kevin McCarthy might have done. It's, it's kind of, you know, I have no idea what he would do. 
Former Vice President Dick Cheney was at the Capitol earlier today. He said this about the state of the Republican Party, quote, I am deeply disappointed at the failure of many members of my party to recognize the grave nature of the January 6 attacks and the ongoing threat to our nation. Do you agree? And, and how do you change the direction of the Republican Party? How do you get Republican officials to stop lying about the election? Well, I do agree with Vice President Cheney's remarks today. And, you know, I've been speaking out about this myself uh, repeatedly over the past year. Uh, it, uh, it bothers me uh, deeply. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, people in, in, the, in my party who uh, refuse to accept the realities of what happened one year ago today are, are making a big mistake. And, you know, putting a fealty to Donald Trump ahead of their, you know, their uh, constitutional uh, oath to uh, defend the Constitution and uh, represent their constituents. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not helpful for the Republican Party. It's not good for the country. And look, I, I remember vividly uh, exactly what happened on January 6th as I was getting frantic calls from the leaders of Congress. And when I had to send in the Maryland State Police and the Maryland National Guard, uh, you know, anybody who doesn't believe that that happened on January 6th is just not telling the truth. But we've we've heard today even uh, from Republican officials, uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, belittling what happened uh, that day. It, it seems like the fever is getting worse in your party, not better. Well, you know, I um, I, I would actually uh, agree with you. I, I was I, I thought that by now that uh, perhaps the fever would would break and that uh, more people would start standing up and telling the truth. There are some leaders. There are a few more Republicans that are coming up and, and, and telling it like it is, uh, but there's certainly um, you know a shortage of, of courage in my party and a lot of people that are just kind of whitewashing what happened. Uh, you know, you 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 can have different opinions on different issues, and you know I certainly don't uh, you know uh, question Kevin McCarthy's uh, you know desire to be Speaker uh, and Republicans taking over the House. I you know but I I don't think we ought to get there. Uh, by trying to uh, deal with conspiracy theories and, and lying about what happened in the uh, in the last election or trying to pretend like this wasn't a violent insurrection at the Capitol a year ago. And what, what do people, Republican office holders, tell you, ones that, that aren't as bold as you or Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger or Jeff Duncan, what do they tell you about why uh, they either go along with this or spew the lies? Well, you know, uh, you, you hear a little bit of everything. There's some people, I think, are actually uh, actually believe the stuff that they're saying, uh, but there's an awful lot of people, I think, that are just afraid. Uh, they're they're afraid of being primaried. They're afraid of being attacked. I mean, look, this is people are actually being threatened uh, to, to for standing up and 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 saying what they believe. And um, you know, so it, it, it's uh, I think there's a little bit of you know, people all over the spectrum, but there's certainly a lot of my friends and colleagues in, in my party who uh, realized that, uh, you know, that the election, uh, although, you know, there may have been some improprieties here and there, that there was not enough to overturn the election. Uh, so, and that uh, what happened on Jan January 6th was an assault on our democracy. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just staffers and members of Congress and journalists and, and observers. It, it was an assault on democracy. Exactly. As you, as you put it, there are um, former Trump staffers uh, according to former Trump Communications Chief Stephanie Grisham, uh, at least 15 of them uh, who are going to meet next week to, to talk about a way to, to stop this, this fever, the, this disease in the Republican Party. 
what can they do? You've, you've been out there speaking your mind, following your father's example. For people who might not know, your dad, uh, rest in peace, uh, was a Republican congressman from Maryland, and, and he voted to uh, impeach uh, Richard Nixon uh, after Watergate, and, and very bravely so, and, and was alone. So you're, you, you come from good stock. But for people who don't have the DNA, what do you tell them? Yeah. Well, no, I, look, I, I, I'm not the only one uh, speaking. You mentioned a few. Uh, there are other uh, Republican leaders. I, I saw there was, a, there was an op-ed by Carl Rove today that was pretty hard-hitting. Uh, you know, my friend Chris Christie, is this, who was very close to President Trump, is speaking out. We had a number of people resign their cabinet positions and leave the White House. And so I, I, think, I, think, people, I think people, you know, just uh, speaking their, their, their mind and their conscience and, and telling, uh, the, you know, what really happened, uh, I think the more voices, the merrier. I, this is something really important to me. It's, uh, you know, I, I've been focused on this uh, for the entire time I've been in elective office, but especially over the past year. And it's, uh, I, I think we need to have more uh, voices in the Republican Party that are willing to have the courage to stand up and, and, and speak out. I think uh, Politico went back and looked at the 18 members of the Trump administration that resigned in protest uh, because of January 6th or around that time suggesting, and only one of them, only one of them, Alyssa Farah, uh, and, and uh, I think uh, Stephanie Grisham also, so two, uh, were, have been willing to, to say anything since. The Secretary Chow and others, dead silence. Uh, Governor Larry Hogan, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today, as always. Thank you. Coming up next, stopping thank extremists you. and another possible insurrection. Security and intelligence experts are going to talk about how that's easier said than done. Stay with us. This is a live look right now at the steps of Capitol Hill, where any moment members of Congress are going to hold a prayer vigil to mark the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Uh, Once again, security gates and bike fences are up around the Capitol, this time as lawmakers gather for this moment of silence uh, to mark this one year since the dark, deadly day. Those barriers also serve as a stark reminder that there are still extremists who want to resurface, according to uh, the intelligence community. Let's talk about that threat while we wait for the prayer vigil to start. I want to bring in former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Terrence Gaynor, former FBI Senior Intelligence Advisor Phil Mudd, and former Department of Homeland Security Assistant Secretary Juliet Kayyem. Chief Gaynor, I'll start with you. You spent many years in leadership positions at the Capitol. For years, you've called for a more secure perimeter. Um, Have those calls been taken more seriously in recent years? Well, in some ways they have, but uh, when you see we still refuse to think maybe long term about fences and traffic around security, I don't think we've addressed that. And the nature of the threat has changed. This violent extremist uh, is a very different threat than we prepared for years ago. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt. Uh, We have to go to the Capitol to listen to the prayer vigil. Let's listen in. Right now, we're hearing from, uh, I believe this is uh, Bishop. You are the source of all that is good and just and true and compassionate. We come before you, the fountain of all wisdom and the light of all truth. We come before you not in pride or arrogance, but we come before you in true humility. We come before you because we need your help. We need your help in these troubled times. We need your help for this beloved nation. We need your help for those who have been traumatized and troubled by the painful events of one year ago. 
and all that has continued since. We need your help, Lord, now to be the democracy you would have us to be, to be the nation you would have us to be, one nation under God indivisible with liberty and justice for all. So we ask you now to help us, help all those who are traumatized, help all of those who have lost loved ones, help those who are struggling, Help us to be instruments of your peace, instruments of your love, and instruments of your healing for this land, for this Congress, for this government, for we the people, for this country and this world. Precious Lord, we come not in arrogance or pride, but humbly. Precious Lord, please take our hand. Lead us on. Let us stand. Some of us are tired. Some of us are weak. And some are worn. But through the storm, through the night, lead us on to the light. Take our hands precious Lord, and lead us home. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, Master Sergeant Sarah Sheffield of the President's Own United States Marine Band. My country tis of thee Sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Our fathers, God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light protect us by thy might great god king. we thank miss shepherd for leading us in song Bishop Curry for leading us in prayer. On behalf of the distinguished Democratic leader of the Senate, all of our colleagues from the House and Senate, we prayerfully walk one year since the insurrection and patriotically honor the heroes who defended the Capitol and our, that, our democracy that day. Let us all here 
join in a moment of silence in memory of those who lost their lives and sacrificed so much for our democracy that day. God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above, from the mountains to the prairies, to the oceans white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining the prayer vigil. Have a good rest of your evening. You just watched a solemn prayer vigil on the steps of the U.S. Capitol as members of Congress mark one year since the deadly Capitol insurrection. I'm not sure who is in the audience there. I hope it is a bipartisan crowd. I do not know, and I cannot tell with the masking there. I want to bring back my panel of national security experts to discuss ways to stop another potential Capital attack, uh, Phil Mudd. Let me let me go to you now. Th- these threats go go well beyond the Capitol and Washington D.C. Of course, um, I spoke with the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas uh, yesterday. Here's what he said about what fuels this extremism. Domestic violent extremism uh, does, in fact, remain one of the greatest threats that we face on the homeland. Words matter, and the words of leaders matter a lot. And that can actually fuel the spread of false information and can drive people to violence. And Phil, that's a point you, you've made on this show before. Yeah. Um, members of Congress sometimes are not only the victims, some of them are the source of the problem. I think so. And I think if you look at the language he's using, I'd expand that language. When you hear domestic violent extremism, I think some people will say, you know, the FBI, the Capitol Police state and local police across the country can handle this because extremism is groups like the Proud Boys. Let me give you a bottom line, Jake. When we did threats uh, 20 years ago for the FBI director, we had maybe a handful on the table every day of serious players and maybe 5,000 investigations of al-Qaeda nationwide. That's violent extremism of a foreign nature. That's not a revolution. Today, you had 700 people charged in one day There are members of Congress who believe that this extremism is not only acceptable, but that violence may be the only solution. And polling data says that there are tens of millions of people who sympathize with them. Let me be clear. Law enforcement can't handle this. That's not extremism. That's a revolution. And the leaders have a responsibility to cut it out. Yeah. I mean, revolution is a, is a, is a nice term for it. Uh, treason uh, might be another one. Uh, uh, Juliet, uh, militia groups have long organized underground in this country. How dangerous are they? Do local law enforcement uh, officials need to do more to stop those groups? 
they're, they're dangerous. And see, what we saw a, a year after uh, the insurrection was essentially uh, for a while they went quiet because they knew that they were being sort of under surveillance. And then you, you've seen this sort of ratcheting up, but it's been quite localized. And it's combined the political grievance of Stop the Steal with all this other crazy conspiracies about what the vaccine does to you or or uh, or uh, what, what our kids are studying in school. So you've had this, what is, I call it the hate stew, which is brewing on a local level. And I think, but uh, just to Phil's point, that feeds off of a sense of winning that Trump tries to give these people. I mean, in other words, you cannot separate what's happening on the local level with a sense that there's a leadership. And so I've always over the last year focused on Trump. Because what you need to focus on now is recruitment. It is, there's going to be people who can't be changed. We have to uh, uh, recognize that. You want to stop this thing from getting bigger. And that goes to a sense of people who join these violent groups that they are on a winning team. And that was, I have to say, the brilliance of Biden's speech today. Without naming him, he belittled Trump. He minimized him. He said, we're not negotiating. We're not, I don't need to understand you anymore. This is about good versus bad. It was an essential pivot to stop recruitment and radicalization. And Chief Gaynor, more January 6th defendants come from Florida than any other state. Uh, Last July, Capitol Police announced plans to open a regional office in Tampa just to investigate threats to members of Congress. What do you make of that? Well, that's a a good step, but it also requires, I think, as both uh, Phil and uh, Juliet are indicating, that this is nationwide and our local police departments are not well equipped to do that because you may recall that we really cut back on intelligence units in local police departments and people uh, have been reticent about getting mixed up in the whole issue about First Amendment rights. So we have to refocus our local law enforcement officers to give them the tools to monitor this and then at the same time people are complaining about we don't want artificial intelligence, we don't like uh, cameras, we want to be free to do what we want but the expectation is there's a lot of people who have to work together to feed that information and intelligence to make everybody smarter about this. And Phil, the Anti-Defamation League is among uh, the groups tracking how extremism, how bigotry and hate metastasized in the year since the election. Um, the CEO of the ADL said today that extremism has recently become more localized. Take a listen. These extremists have grown more organized. They've been increasingly emboldened. They've shifted from large public rallies to small local school board meetings, to attacking the integrity of medical professionals, to intimidating uh, town council members and whatnot. What would you be looking for for evidence of a potential threat? Obviously, people can believe whatever they want to believe and exercise their rights and free speech. But in terms of a potential threat, what would you look for? Well, the problem you have here is you're not looking at a single group where you can focus intelligence resources. I have to have some indication of violence. Otherwise, as we're talking about, somebody's going to come up and say, I just went to a school board meeting and spoke what I wanted to speak. That's a First Amendment Amendment right. So they're learning what language to use to get under the radar. The final thing I'd say, Jake, is what you need is help from the political side. Let me give you a scenario. You go into a hearing and somebody at at the council or in the Congress says, I agree with those guys. What do you say? Yeah. And Julia Kayyem, final thought? 
Uh, no, I mean, I, I agree with everything said, and I think what we need to focus on is that this is a this is a problem of uh, of the majority uh, in terms of focusing on a min minority sentiment. We have a sense sometimes that this is like an equal fight. It is not. This is a small group that would use violence for political gains. You could call them terrorists, insurrectionists. Uh, and so pivoting to a winning stance is what we need to do as Americans, not be afraid of this, but to actually shame it, call it what it is, uh, and prosecute it when the threat of violence is real. My thanks to all of you. Thank you so much. President Biden forcefully uh, laying out the facts about January 6th. But is the United States simply too divided for his words to change any hearts and minds? Stay with us. A look now at President Biden's role in the fight to save American democracy. Today, President Biden dismissed questions about whether his forceful remarks given at the U.S. Capitol earlier today could end up dividing the country more than healing it. The way you have to heal, you have to recognize the extent of the wound. You can't pretend. This is serious stuff. And a lot of people, understandably, want to go, look, I, I, that was an exception. I, you know, I just assume not face it. You got to face it. That's what great nations do. They face the truth, deal with it, and move on. Here to discuss former Obama administration official Van Jones and Biden biographer and New Yorker writer Evan Osnos. Van, let me start with you. Um, president Biden mentioned the former president 16, nine, 16 times without actually using the word Trump, uh, calling, saying that he lost, he failed, he lies. You're somebody who thinks about ways to reach out to Trump supporters. How do you do that when mm -hmm. so many of them just believe this lie? Well, look. I mean, uh, first of all, I think you, know, you have to uh, you have to punish the ones who did wrong. I mean, the, the fact that right now you got a bunch of people who did a bunch of bad stuff, who cheerleaded for it, and they have not been prosecuted at all, is a very bad sign. It means you can do horrible stuff and get away with it. So you've got to be tough on the ones that are bad. But I think what we don't do enough of, though, I, th I think you know, doing it more now, there are people in the Republican Party who did the right thing, who stood up to this president. Uh, the reason that you have a functioning democracy right now is because black women in the South who are progressive uh, did more than they, they, anybody could have ever imagined, and because a bunch of white conservative grassroots election officials did the right thing and put the Constitution above their party. And is the, the twin uh, uh, result of, of black women and white men who voted against each other but still fought for the same country. That's, we don't say enough, of, of, we don't lift up the good enough, uh, but we got to do more to punish the wrongdoers. Evan, uh, was there anything in Biden's speech that you heard today that, that a Trump-supporting Republican in Congress or, or, or in the, a voter could agree with? You know, well, one of the things I heard that was very distinct was him saying, look, this is not just about this former president. This is also about the web of lies. That idea, the web of lies, is really important because you have to think about there's a whole apparatus really that is out there that is profiting from the web of lies that is spreading the web of lies and if you're going to try to peel off people within this broader community that might eventually say you know what enough is enough to quote uh lindsey graham on 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 the night of uh after the riot of january 6th if you're going to try to get people to actually say enough is enough you have to recognize that there are people out there who are pulling this country apart for no other reason than to make money from it that's one of the arguments he made today and van uh, there's a poll from november that shows only 12 percent of the of the american people think that the country has become more united since biden took office 49 percent say it's become more divided 38 percent say the country hasn't changed that that's not 
Biden's fault necessarily, but that's just what people think of, about the state of the nation. Uh, we're almost a year into Biden's first term. If you were advising him, what would you do to, to tell him so he could change that, so he could unite us more? Look, the, the most important uh, threat we have right now is with the election coming up, having a double legitimacy crisis where if the Republicans uh, lose they don't accept it. They say there was trickery. If the Democrats lose, we don't accept it. We say there was voter suppression. And there's just no confidence at all now in our voting system. I think there could be a grand bargain on voting. I think trying to do it with only one side the way we're doing it in the, at the state level where only Republicans get their way and then trying to, at the, the federal level, have only Democrats get our way. I think there is an opportunity. Everybody would like to feel better about our election system. And I think he could uh, perhaps try to strike a, a grand bargain on voting. And that could show uh, a pathway forward together as Americans. Evan, uh, you have written one of the most uh, in-depth biographies of President Biden uh, that exists. Uh, do you think that there's anything more he can do to change the vicious political divisions? Or does he really view this through the perspective of democracy versus autocracy, which is one of the themes of his presidency in his view? You know, look, Jake, it took a generation for this country to get as divided as it is. It's going to take more than a year uh, to begin to stitch it back together. You heard him today speaking, frankly, with a kind of bluntness that we haven't heard from him about the reality of the disunity in this country, about him saying, let's brush this aside. As long as we're facing these kinds of obstacles, it's impossible. But you heard him land on the note that he came to this presidency with, which is that this is a struggle for the soul of the nation. And that sounded, I think, to a lot of people like kind of empty campaign rhetoric today on the one year anniversary of January 6th. It sounds like a pretty clear prognosis, a diagnosis of the problem we're facing. Evan Osnos, Van Jones, good to see both of you. Thanks for joining us. And I'll be back with you tonight in just a couple hours, joined by Anderson Cooper. We're going to be live from the Capitol for live coverage of January 6th, one year later. That starts at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, she was one of the lawmakers stuck in the gallery when the Capitol was attacked. Wolf is going to talk to Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal ahead. Stay with us. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.